You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Acts chapter 6. We've reached a major division in the book of Acts. We get to the end of chapter 5, and I want you to know there's sort of a, a mild change of focus in Luke's narrative as he's writing this. We have kind of are beginning to focus on something a little bit different than what we've seen in the first five chapters. The first five chapters have chronicled the beginning of the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. And Acts 1 through 5 portrays for us what I have termed an unstoppable movement that began after the ascension of our Lord and after the day of Pentecost. We have seen the beginnings of the church, the beginnings of persecution, the beginnings of so many things in the book of Acts. It's kind of the New Testament book of beginnings. We see a whole new thing being being portrayed for us in the first five chapters. And Luke kind of goes to great lengths to show us that in spite of all of the opposition, the church continued to grow. In spite of the threats, in spite of the imprisonments, in spite of the the flogging that the apostles got, in spite of the death threats and the attempts of even the religious leaders to kill these men, the church continued to be this force to be reckoned with. You just could not stop its growth. And I want you to turn back to chapter 1 for just one moment, and I want you to get an idea of how Luke sort of portrays this exponential growth of the church. Acts chapter 1, verse 15 This is after the ascension, prior to Pentecost. Peter stands up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 people were gathered together. So it starts out relatively small, with just 120 people. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 41. After the day of Pentecost, after Peter's sermon, so then those who received the word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. So you have 3,120 in rough figures, about that many people, after the day of Pentecost. So that's already a megachurch by our definition. 3,120 people in that. Then you turn, look down to chapter 2, verse 47. That's not it. Praising God and having favor with all the people they were. And the Lord was adding to them number day by day those who were being saved. Then look over at chapter 4, verse 4. After Peter heals the beggar at the temple and he preaches to the crowd, chapter 4, verse 4 says, Many of those who had heard the message believed and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So by this point, they've given up numbering everybody, and Luke just gives us the number of men, likely a reference to perhaps heads of households or the mature men within the church. Not that women were insignificant, that's not the issue. It's just you can't number all of those people, so Luke kind of gives us an idea of how many men you had within the church. So you add to that number the number of women and then children, And then the Lord continues to add to their number daily. Chapter 5, verse 14. Look what Luke says. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Then you get to chapter 6, verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number. Do you get the picture? Starts off with this relatively small group of 120 people. And within a very short period of time, perhaps a year or a little more, what do you have? We've gotten past the point of numbering even the men, and it's just multitudes of people. Multitudes of people. And while the disciples were continuing to increase in number. So you have this unstoppable movement in chapters 1 through 5. Chapters 6 through 12, it's a little bit different. 
Chapter 6 through 12 is really not a portrayal of an unstoppable movement. Chapter 6 through 12, Luke begins to focus on what were some of the issues that the early church had to deal with. With that kind of exponential growth, there were certainly some problems that they had. So he begins to talk about some of those problems. Acts chapter 6, you have the distribution of food and, and aid to the widows that causes a complaint. We're going to look at that this morning. Later on, we see the first martyrdom in the church, which is Stephen. After that, the first apostle is martyred. James, John's brother, is martyred for his faith. Then we have a Gentile that gets saved. Oh, a non-Jew in the church. What in the world will we do with that? That caused no small disturbance amongst the apostles. And they had to deal with that controversy. So you have all of these theological issues that are coming up, all of these people problems that are starting to be dealt with, and Luke gives us a real balanced picture of what life was like in the early church. Lest you and I begin to romanticize these early believers that say, oh, I wish that our church was just like that. Luke does a good job of portraying for us not only the good, but also some of the ugly. He gives us the good, the bad, the beautiful, and the ugly. He mixes in enough of the human element in his narrative to show us that there were some issues in the church that had to be addressed. And one issue is really a crisis that comes up in Acts chapter 6. And we're going to look at that this morning. Luke in chapters 1 through 5 says that everybody was of one mind. They were together. They were unified. You have this unified church. But in Acts chapter 6 verse 1, uh-oh, a complaint arose. That's the crisis. Now the question is, how will the apostles deal with this complaint? And how does it work out? So Acts chapter 6, we're going to begin with verse 1, and we're going to, I want you just to observe three things this morning pertaining to this complaint, or this crisis really. The first is the reason that this crisis comes up in Acts chapter 6. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. That tells us the reason that this crisis came up. One of the things that's contributing to this crisis is the sheer number of disciples, which is why Luke says, while the disciples were continuing to increase in number. So we've gone past the point of having 5,000 men to having an innumerable multitude where we just give up numbering them all together, and all Luke can say is, the Lord continued to add multitudes of believers to their number. Now, in the early church in Jerusalem, if you were to take, let's just take 5,000 men back in chapter 4, assume that every man was represented by a woman in the church, that's 10,000 people in the city of Jerusalem. Add to that some young teenagers, add to that some children who undoubtedly believed, add to that more multitudes who come in. We're talking upwards of 20,000 people in the church in Jerusalem by this point. The disciples are increasing in number daily. And not only with the increase in people, not only do you have an increased workload for the apostles, but you have another problem. A complaint arises because of this distribution of food that was going on in the early church. Now the word complaint, let me tell you what the word does not mean, I'll tell you what the word does mean. The word means a grumbling, a murmuring, a quiet discontent. It's um, how one lexicon described it or defined the word it's that secretive, secretive complaint that nobody will avow publicly. You have this rumbling, this murmuring, this private sniping that was going on amongst the Christians that the apostles are sort of discerning and learning about. It's the word that Paul uses in Philippians 2.14, let nothing be done 
with compl- complaining. It's the word that Peter uses to say, show hospitality without complaint, without any kind of quiet behind everybody's back, snickering and murmuring and sniping that was going on. That's what was happening in the early church. It's this quiet. It's not, this, here's what it's not. It's not a, a group of five or six people coming to Peter and the rest of the apostles and say, hey, we've noticed something going on. We would like to, first of all, for you to know about it, and then how can we help solve this problem? Here's what we've seen happen. Some of the natives, some of the Hellenistic widows, Jewish widows, are being overlooked. So here's the problem. Well, how can we help you solve it? That's not what was happening. What was happening was there was this rumbling discontent amongst people, and everybody would talk about it behind everybody else's back, but nobody would go to the apostles and just say, here's the issue. Let's bring it out in the open. A good complaint for church leadership is one where people say, here's the issue, Here, what can we do about this, and am I misunderstanding something here? A bad complaint is one where you hear this undercurrent, and everybody says, I heard so-and-so talking about this, or I don't want to name any names, but this is what I'm hearing going on. Listen, folks, that has no place amongst God's people. That's what was happening here. You can't just turn your nose up at these people and say, well, we would never do that. The reality is, all of us have done that. All of us have taken an issue that we had and discussed it on a hundred fronts other than the one to whom it really mattered. And if they had just gone to the apostles and said, here's the problem, then they would have resolved it. But instead, there was this complaint, this undercurrent of sniping that was going on. And I don't know if the apostles really knew what the source of it was, I don't know if the apostles really knew who it was that was making the issue. But there was a complaint that arose in the early church. And it threatened to divide. Because it was between, Luke tells us, Hellenistic Jews and native Jews. Now what's the difference between a Hellenistic Jew and a native Jew? If you're a native Idahoan, you can sort of relate to this scenario. Okay? There were a group of Jews who landed in Jerusalem, maybe after the day of Pentecost. Maybe they went back to the city in their older age to die there and to be buried in the holy city. But there was a group of Greek-speaking Jews who were born outside of the nation of Israel in other Roman provinces. They learned Greek. They had been all of their lives indoctrinated in the Greek and Roman way of thinking, the Greek and the Roman way of going about business and doing life. They, When they met in the city of Jerusalem, they had their own little synagogue because they didn't speak the native Hebrew like the native Jews did. And they had the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That was their Bible, not the original Hebrew. So you had this group of Jews, a minority in Jerusalem, who read from a different Bible, worshipped in different synagogues, and spoke a different language than the native Jews. Then you had the native Jews, on the other hand, who spoke Hebrew fluently. And their Bible was the Hebrew Bible. And they met in their little Hebrew synagogues and had their Hebrew worship services. And guess what happened? Guess what the attitude was between the Greek-speaking Jews and the native Jews? The Pharisees made no secret about their hatred for the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews. They were, as far as the Pharisees were concerned, second-class Israelites because they didn't speak Hebrew. So you already had this cultural divide in the city of Jerusalem that existed between this minority of non-natives and these native Jews. And that type of prejudice, and you can see how, would easily come into the church. You're only a few months into it. You find you've been a Christian for a long time. But for 40 years, you've had this prejudice against these non-native Jews. And so there was this animosity. And the Greek-speaking Jews didn't necessarily like the one-upmanship of the and the haughtiness of the native Jews. So there was a cultural divide that existed. And Luke says that this complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews 
because their widows were being neglected in the daily serving of food. Now, if you've been with us from the beginning of the book of Acts, then you remember seeing at the end of chapter 2 and in chapter 3 and in chapter 4 how the Christians took care of their own amongst them, right? Remember the subject of Ananias and Sapphira? That came up because of what? People were selling their property and giving it to the apostles, and the apostles were distributing to the needy within the church. And they were giving their goods, and the church was providing for its own widows and beggars and people who were needy and out of work. The church was doing all of that. So up until this point, everybody that had money to be given to the poor brought it to the apostles. They turned it over to the apostles, and the apostles were seeing to it that the money was distributed. Who was doing the distribution? Hellenistic Jews or native Jews? The apostles were native Jews, not Hellenistic Jews. They were native Jews. So this sniping is really aimed at who? At whom? The apostles. Hey, we're being neglected. Who's responsible for that? It's them. Now, the distribution of food. You look at that and you say, that's such a small issue. But that's usually how big issues start is such a small issue. You and I might be tempted to look at that and say, come on, it's the distribution of food. It's the distribution to the needy. And it's free, and you're looking a gift horse in the mouth because occasionally your widows are overlooked. Don't you understand that the world's a lot bigger than you are? Does everything revolve around you? We might be tempted to look at it like that. But this is really just a symptom of something that existed prior to the church, this cultural division. And now the Hellenistic Jews are saying, hey, we're feeling slighted. Now, was this intentional on behalf of the apostles? I don't think it was. There's nothing in the text that indicates they intentionally did it. What led to this? Now, you got a church of, let's say, conservatively speaking, say 20,000 people. You have a church of 20,000 people with 12 men in oversight of that kind of a body. Now, whenever you have people, you have problems, and all of us are a problem, myself included. So if you have 20,000 people, you have 20,000 problems. Then you've got doctrinal issues that need to be dealt with. You've got sin issues in the church that need to be dealt with. They're doing all of the preaching and the teaching, as far as we can see in the book of Acts. They've got men that they need to disciple and raise up amongst themselves to take over some of these responsibilities. So they're doing bulk of the evangelism, a lot of the preaching and the teaching, probably all of the discipleship, overseeing the financial picture, dealing with sin issues, and 20,000 people in the church. Then on top of that, they have the distribution to the needy, which was a daily thing. And that could have taken hours if you have several people there for them to come in and you to distribute portions of that and keep records of that. Friends, we're talking about a workload that would boggle our minds what they had to do. And so what are they doing? They end up doing something that they shouldn't be doing, and that's distributing food. And there's something else that suffers as a result of it. Look at verse 2. Luke says, The twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. Now, that's not a prideful, arrogant, look-down-your-nose-at-that-ministry type of attitude. What they're saying is, it is not good for us, it is not good for the entire church or the whole Christian body for us to spend our time distributing funds to the needy when we should be about the work of preaching and teaching. So the disciples understand that not only is there this cultural issue that comes up and this complaint, but there's really something that has provided the foundation for that complaint to arise. And it is what? They have taken something that is of secondary importance as far as their calling is concerned, and they have put it on par with their calling. So they're doing all of these things, and they end up not doing any of them well. So guess what suffers? 
The preaching and teaching ministry suffers because they end up neglecting the Word of God in prayer and the distribution to the needy suffers. Wayne Martindale once said, if you put first things first, you get second things thrown in. If you put second things first, you lose both first and second things. That's what's happening with the apostles. Listen, it's not an issue of the apostles' ministry being superior or better or more spiritual, the teaching and the preaching. That's not the idea. Because diakonos, the word for service or ministry, is used of both serving tables and of preaching the Word. There's the ministry of serving tables and there's the ministry of preaching the Word. Every ministry is a spiritual ministry and every ministry is valid. And the apostles are not saying, we shouldn't be doing this. This is too menial for us. Could the apostles have done it? Certainly they could. Were they willing to do it? Certainly they were willing. But the issue is not one of one ministry is better than another, but the issue is one of calling. The apostles had to come to the point where they said, this is not what we are called to do. This is what I am called to do. And so I must devote our, we must devote ourselves to this in order that this would not suffer and take this ministry which is equally spiritual and equally as good and equally as needed and appoint men to oversee this because this is not our calling. And listen, the principle is the same as it was in Acts chapter 6. When you take somebody who is not gifted and not called to a certain ministry and you cram them into that ministry, you're going to have a whole lot of frustrated people. They're going to be frustrated and everybody they minister to is going to be frustrated. If you take somebody who is a gifted teacher and preacher and pull them away from the Word and say, we would like you to sweep this and do that and serve here and go fix that and be this and be that, you're going to have two frustrated people. The people that he's doing that for are going to be frustrated and the preacher or the teacher is going to be frustrated. And the opposite is the case. If you take somebody who's gifted in service and in helps and in doing those type of things and you force them to teach, guess what happens? Nobody gets taught. And everybody's frustrated. And nobody learns. And everything suffers. So a church is blessed. This is what the apostles say. The church is blessed when you allow gifted people to serve in the capacity of their giftedness and free them up to do that. And don't place upon them expectations and burdens where God has not called them to serve. The apostles said, this is not good. You don't want us involved in this because this would suffer. You want us involved in this so that this doesn't suffer. And you want men who are called to this to do this so that this won't suffer. That's what they do. That's the reason for the issue. Luke says in verse 2 that the apostle said it's not desirable for us to neglect, you could put in there our calling, the Word of God, in order to serve or minister at the tables. Now they give us the resolution to the issue. Here's how they resolve it. Verse 3. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Look at their emphasis again. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte for Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. How do they resolve this? They say, select seven men. Now, is there something significant with the number seven? You say, it's the number of completion. It's the biblical number, and it's a picture of this and a symbol of that. It's none of that. Get off of numerology. They needed seven men because they knew how many men it would take to oversee that ministry, and they picked seven. If they needed eight, they would have chosen eight. If they needed 30, they would have chosen 30. If they needed three, they would have chosen three. 
The issue is not the number. But they choose enough men to oversee this ministry. Seven men, and they say they need to have some qualifications. First, they need to be of good reputation. Why is it important that they be of good reputation? What are you turning over to them? Large sums of money. People are coming into the church selling parcels of land that they have and laying them at the apostles' feet. If you're going to turn over tens of thousands of dollars to somebody, you better make sure that there's somebody with a good reputation. You don't want somebody saying, well, he takes, does this with his own finances and he does this with his business finances and he's really questionable on how he handles money. It needs to be men who are of impeccable integrity and honesty and uprightness and somebody who's trustworthy, somebody who has a good reputation. But second, they needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit and with wisdom. Those are two other qualifications. They needed to have the Holy Spirit. Why the Spirit? Because every ministry in the church is a spiritual ministry. No matter what you do, whether you sweep floors or whether you preach the Word, whether you wait tables or whether you work in Awana, whether you teach Sunday school or whether you clean the church or mow the lawn, whatever it is, whatever ministry you do, it's a spiritual ministry. So if you're going to overtake or oversee and take a ministry, then you need to be a spiritual individual, or that is to say somebody who is yielded to the Spirit of God in all areas of their lives. you got to be somebody who's fleshly and just say, hey, this is just waiting tables. Just Let's just find the best-minded businessman we can and just put him into that position. That's not what they do. He needs to be full of the Spirit of God. He needs to be yielded to the Spirit before we turn over to him a ministry. Third thing, third qualification, is that they needed to be filled with wisdom. You're handling money and finances and people's needs. You have to have an ability to discern, does this person really need this? Or are they just coming to us to get money so that they can go out and gamble it? Or so that they can go out and buy this rather than take care of their needs? you got to have the ability to discern needs and have wisdom when you're handling people's needs. And, and you have to have sensitive to that. Somebody comes to you and they have a need and you're a deacon and, and you're going to turn over church finances that. you got to have wisdom, know when to keep your mouth shut and what to say and what not to say and how to deal with that situation. They had to be spiritual men. They had to be wise men. And they had to be men of integrity with a good reputation. Now, Acts chapter 6 is not the institution of the office of deacon. It's sort of a prototype, if you will, of the office of deacon. Diakonos is used twice in the passage to refer to their ministry because it's one of service. So what you have in Acts chapter 6 is the apostles discerning a crisis they select seven men who are of good reputation, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, and they put them in charge of a ministry, and they place some qualifications on it and say, now we're going to give this to them, but you don't have the institution of an office. What you really have is a ministry being formed. So 30 years later, when Paul writes to the Philippian church, Philippians 1.1, he addresses the letter to the elders and the deacons, because within 30 years, what these men started out doing really morphed into and became a model for a, a whole arm of church ministry. And then five years after that, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and says, a deacon must be this, this, and this, and he actually gives qualifications for the office. Now, what is a deacon? Is a deacon synonymous with an elder? If a deacon is synonymous with an elder, if those are the same thing, then we'd have to ask ourselves, why does Paul give two lists of qualifications? And why are they different if they're synonymous offices? Is a deacon just somebody who is on a board of trustees who has the, the responsibility for the care of church facilities and to mow the lawn and rake the lawn and, and sweep the floor? Is that what a deacon is? Are deacons supposed to oversee the spiritual ministry of a church, the direction, the doctrinal statement, the teaching ministries? None of that. You know what a deacon is? A deacon is somebody, or deacons are men, that a church places in charge of its benevolent ministry. It's a mercy ministry. 
You take men who have the gift of helps. They don't have to be able to teach. That's why Paul doesn't say a deacon must be able to teach. They don't have to be able to teach. They just have to have a gift of compassion and service and be able to oversee a very real branch of the church ministry, which is the meeting of physical needs within the congregation. And the elders' responsibility is the spiritual needs of the congregation. One distributes physical food, if you will, physical bread. The other deals with spiritual bread. The elders are responsible for the whole oversight. The deacons take a share of the elders' workload in dealing with the physical needs amongst the people in the congregation. That's what the deacons are. What we have here is just the beginnings of the apostles being willing to discern, hey, there's a whole area of ministry here. Let's take some gifted men and put them into that. And later on, that becomes the diaconate or the deacon ministry of the early church. So much so that Paul would say, because deacons were so common, Paul would just say, here's their qualifications. They need to have these things in place before you put them in charge of that kind of a ministry. So it's the early stages of a deacon ministry. That's how they resolve the conflict. You'll notice that they list the seven men. One man is given more of a prominent role in the list than the others. His name is Stephen. Luke tells us that Stephen was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then he doesn't mention anything about the other six. It's not because the other six weren't. It's because Luke wants us to understand this man, Stephen. Here's his character, full of the Spirit of God, a great man of faith. Now, why does he single out Stephen? Stephen is the first Christian martyr. And he's going to be killed in, I hate to spoil the ending for you, he's going to be killed in the next chapter. Stephen's going to be martyred for his faith. And so Luke is just kind of giving us this transition. Here's Stephen. Here's the kind of man he was. Here's how he was introduced to the church. And later on, you're going to find out about what happened to Stephen. That's the reason for the conflict of the crisis. That's how it was resolved. Now, I want you to look at the results of it. In verse 6, they bring them before the apostles. And after praying, they lay their hands on them. Um, The laying on of hands, just before we get to verse 7, the laying on of hands really is a physical symbolism of a conveyance of responsibility and ministry. It identifies you with somebody else. And we do this when we install new elders or recognize new elders from amongst our congregation. We bring them up front and publicly. We lay hands on them. And what the existing eldership is doing is saying, we're accepting this man as an overseer in the church. And on behalf of the church, we're recognizing this ministry, his giftedness and his calling. And we're installing him into that office because he meets the biblical qualifications and has been performing the service of an elder amongst us. And so you're conveying a ministry to an individual. You're identifying yourself with that individual and you're commissioning them. That's why Paul said to Timothy, do not neglect the spiritual gift which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Because when Timothy was commissioned to ministry, the Apostle Paul and others in the church laid their hands on Timothy and said, we commission you, we identify with you, and we're sending you out. And so that's what the laying on of hands is about. The results of it, verse 7, did this whole scenario work for the church? Verse 7, the Word of God kept on spreading. Oh, that's music to my ears. Isn't that good news to you? The Word of God continued to spread. Now, you wouldn't be reading that if the apostles just said to the congregation of those who believe, quit your sniping. We're going to continue to do both of these things. We can handle the whole workload. You guys just settle down and we'll fix the problem. If they had done that and continued to allow the benevolent ministry to decline and the preaching ministry to decline, guess what we would be reading? Something entirely different. But they didn't do that. Because they got out of something that was of secondary importance and focused on something that God had genuinely called them to do, the church was blessed and the Word of God continued to increase. Acts chapter 12, 
Luke says later on, the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Acts chapter 19, verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued mightily and prevailed. In other words, the gospel continued to spread and the influence of the word continued to be seen in the lives of people and evangelism was taking place. Look at verse 7. The number of the disciples continued to increase greatly. You've got to ask yourself, is there any more people in Jerusalem to be saved? They just keep getting saved. As a result of what? The apostles wisely dealt with an issue. They said, this is not what we should be doing. This is what we should be doing. Let's find men who are qualified and gifted to do this and turn them loose. Say, go get them. And we'll devote ourselves to what we need to devote ourselves to. The word continued to spread. And look at that last little phrase, and it's a significant one. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. You know why that's significant? That may sound as if it's something that's just tacked on. But listen, folks. There are 8,000 priests in Jerusalem and Levi, uh, 8,000 priests and Levites in the area of Jerusalem who all had oversight in the temple and worked on weekly shifts. And what that means is that the gospel began to have inroads into the priesthood and into the Levites, and they were getting saved. And that's no small accomplishment. And guess what? It makes no small contribution to the hatred that the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin had toward the Christians. The martyrdom of Stephen, I think, is largely related to the influence that they were having amongst the priesthood. That's why Luke says that. They were making inroads to the priests. That's when the Sanhedrin said, enough is enough. Forget Gamaliel's advice. We're going to kill these people. And that just infuriated the apostle, well, Saul of Tarsus, later an apostle Paul, and the rest of the Sanhedrin. They were starting to make some serious inroads into the priesthood. This thing wasn't dying like they had predicted it would. So that's why they unleash all the fury, which we'll begin to look at that next week and Stephen's role in it. But here's what I want to leave you with, this principle from Acts chapter 6. The church is blessed when it allows men and women whom God has gifted to serve in the capacity and in the area of their giftedness. The church is blessed when it allows men and women whom God has gifted and called in a certain capacity to serve in that capacity and not to burden them with what everybody else expects their ministry to be. In other words, you don't take somebody whose giftedness is this and say, well, I know you're gifted and called to do this, but we really don't want you in that ministry. We'd rather have you doing this because there's a need here. That never works. It's a disaster whenever it's tried. A church is blessed when it says, here's your giftedness and calling. We're going to free you up to do that. We're going to keep our hands off of it and allow you to serve in that capacity because that's where God's going to bless you to serve. So let me give you these two things. First of all, mark and check and analyze your own priorities. And ask yourself, am I allowing superfluous things that I am doing to distract me from the one thing that I am called to do? What is it that I am called to do? And if I'm called to do that, I may take a whole bunch of other things and add them to that, but as long as that one thing doesn't suffer. But if that one thing begins to suffer, then there are other secondary things that need to be put on the back burner for a while. So analyze your own area of calling and ask yourself, am I doing the thing that God has called me to do? And am I adding too much to that 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 thing begins to suffer? When that thing begins to suffer, it's time to let other people who are gifted in those capacities do other things. And here's the second thing I want you to do. Not only to guard your own priorities, but to guard the priorities of others. What do I mean by that? Guard the priorities of others. Guard the priorities of others from you. Don't look at somebody else's ministry and say, he ought to be doing that. She ought to be doing that. 
allow God to direct that individual and allow them to serve in that capacity. You know what mistake we usually make? We usually take our own giftedness and say, here's where my passion is. Everybody should be doing this. Everybody should be involved in this. As if this is the only thing that the church does, the only ministry that's of any validity. I don't think that all of you should preach. I'm content if you allow me to do that. I'll allow you to do what God has called you to do. Just don't take what God has gifted you to do and add it to my work week. And I won't take what God has gifted me to do and put it into your work week. I think that that's a good match. I think that's the way the church should function. That's the way the body was designed. When God gifted us, He calls every single believer to an area of ministry in some respect. You ought to be ministering in something. Don't say I'm a witness at my job. That's my ministry. That's not your ministry. Don't say that I'm uh, taking care of my family. That's my ministry. That's not your ministry. Those things are good things. But God has given you a giftedness by which you can serve the body. So guard your own priorities and serve the body in that capacity. And guard other people's priorities from yourself and don't expect them to do what God has not called them to do because it will be a disaster every time it's tried. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for what we learn from this passage. Thank You for gifting Your people. Thank You for calling us to Yourself. And with that calling, also giving us a manifold gift of grace by which we can serve others. And I just pray, Father, that You'd help us to remember this principle to be involved in service, to get involved somewhere, to use our giftedness to serve you, and to be content content with what you bring into our lives in that capacity of service. And we pray that you would help us to focus on that thing and not to neglect what you've called us to, and not to expect others to do what you've called us to do. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.